Father, we pray that we would not lose that vision. That is the vision of all visions. If we've forgotten why we woke up this morning, it's because maybe we forgot that we're His. We're His by grace. That You saved us. It says in Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, help, helpless, dead, Ephesians 2, children of wrath, you came and you saved us. And not only that, but Jesus, you want us to become like you. That is the goal. That is the ultimate satisfaction. That is life. That is what life is all about, is becoming more like you. So, Father, I pray that we would not forget that, that that is why we exist, is to become like you, to be children of God. Thank you. We owe our whole lives to you because you purchased them. We are your sons and daughters. We're your friends, your word says, and we're your slaves. That's what your word says. We're yours. We've been bought with a price. We've been redeemed from darkness. We've been adopted and are going to be getting a huge inheritance when we die and you come back. We thank you for that. But we also thank you for earthly things. We thank you that we have a house. We thank you that we have food. Thank you that we have clothing. We thank you for our family. Thank you for joy and just the enjoyment of being with the family of God. We thank you for protection. We thank you that you've gotten us out of tricky situations so many times. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your peace. so much to be thankful for. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Here we are. Church, it's been a long week. It feels like it. It feels like it's been a long week. It feels like I haven't seen you guys in, for a long time. But it's so good, uh, like Ricky said, that, you know, this, although this might be the time, the Sunday mornings, the time to gather together to see one another, maybe people we haven't seen throughout the week, but really church happens throughout the week. That's what's so great about this church is that it's happening every day of the week, um, whether it's discipleship of each other's houses or a lot of you guys live together, um, and then also life groups that happen throughout the week. So thankful for this church. I really am. Well, turn your Bibles to Acts 5. We are going through Acts 5, 12 to 42. Lots of verses today. Here we go. You ready? This is, we're talking about the true mission of the church this morning. Again, the reason why we're going through the book of Acts is because, one, Paul said in Acts 20 that we are to preach the whole counsel of God, not just our hobby horses, just not just the, the passages that we like to talk about or that we're comfortable with or maybe that we've lived out fully. But Paul says to preach the whole counsel of God. Preach the word of God. He says, in season and out of season. Now, he's not talking about when it's fall or spring. He's talking about every season. He's talking about all the time. He's talking about when it's popular and when it's not. And it's not popular today to preach the word. And so we're going to do it anyways because it changes people's lives. That's what it does. 
It humbles the proud. It comforts the afflicted. It saves the lost. That's what the word of God does. It's amazing. But when the church begins to fail and break down, I guess, or lose its influence in the city, it's usually because it loses its focus. It ultimately loses its mission. It becomes about other things. You know, when Paul came to the Corinthians, they were a very messed up church. If you haven't realized that when you read it, it was a very cosmopolitan city. Think of L.A., uh, think of New York. Uh, think of those types of cities where uh, it may not be popular. Christianity is being marginalized, pushed aside. It's not relevant anymore. It's in those times when the culture says this is not relevant anymore, the church sometimes can begin to compromise. It can begin to say, hey, well, we've got to become more relevant. We've got to make the Bible relevant to people, to modern ears, right? So it becomes more like, it becomes pragmatism. You know what pragmatism is? Here's the definition. If it works, it must be true. If it appeals to people, if it itches their ears, well, it's true. You know, there's churches and pastors where, I've said this before, where they are now beginning to come, and multiple people are doing this, uh, coming in on zip lines in the church just to make it more relevant. Somehow a pastor coming in on a zip line, spending precious tithe money uh, to come in and just make it a appearance on the front with lots of camera action and lots of uh, different accoutrements or just things to appeal to man. It just, it actually waters down the amazing message, right? I don't have to make this more relevant. It is. It is a punch in the gut already. You don't have to get angry. You don't have to get loud. It just, it'll punch you in the gut. Or it'll come around you and comfort you. Paul said in Thessalonians, he came as a father to do two things, right? To exhort and to encourage. That's what the word of God does. It exhorts and it encourages. But also, uh, many people think uh, it's fine to talk politics in the pulpit. Or maybe perhaps social justice is the main cause or the main purpose of the church. Perhaps it's, a, it's some sort of private club or social club or a comfortable clique. It can be. In other words, people come to church because they're lonely and they want to find a family. That isn't the purpose of the church. That is a byproduct of it. It naturally happens when we come to Jesus on his terms. Man, what does it say? Matthew 6.33, when you come to him and make him first, him priority. It says in 1 Corinthians, when you make him first place, first priority again, you get everything. You get the family. You get the purpose. You get the power. You get all the other stuff. And really, that's a wonderful thing. But the purpose is recognizing our sin, is preaching. God. Like Paul says, I don't want to make anything else known to you but Christ and him crucified. Not some sort of sentimental speech, though we hear so much of that. How many, I love the warm, fuzzy feeling when someone tells a very emotional story and it's a tearjerker. I love those. How many of you like those? But you know, 
This is the, that was the problem in Corinthian in the time of Corinth because they were appealing the, the Greek the Greeks right they were great orators great they were making people cry all the time laugh it was entertainment Paul said I'm not interested in any of those things I'm only interested in one thing Christ and Him crucified you know what that is actually it's a stumbling block to the Jews because they wanted a sign. They're constantly saying, hey, give me a sign. And Jesus is saying, hey, you people actually, all you do is try to figure out the sign of the times by looking at the clouds, and God is standing right before you. Here's your sign, me. And you've ignored me. <laughs> you, there's nothing, there, there's literally nothing else Jesus can give us to convince us, to give us salvation. He's already given us the message. It says in Hebrews one, it says that uh, he gave us the prophets, then he gave us Jesus, and then he ultimately gave us what? The word of God. In 2 Peter 1, 20, it says the same thing, that he gave us the word, the sure prophecy, the word of God. That's enough. What you can be thankful, thankful for is not a turkey or family and all these other things, which are wonderful during Thanksgiving, but the Bible. Without the Bible, we have nothing. Everything is that we need to know is through the scriptures. What a wonderful thing. If you, did anyone, honestly, did anyone wake up on Thanksgiving morning and say, thank you for this word? Thank you. I mean, it is, it, it's unbelievable. I, really, the, the fact that we have the written word of God in our laps, available, multiple word of God in, in our house, right? I mean, different translations, <laughs> It's a miracle. Why do I say that? Because there's so many countries that don't have the word. Readily available. They may have it in some fragment. Maybe even in China, they rip pages and hand them to each other and crumble them up, put them in their pocket, and then exchange. Can you imagine reading the Bible that way? They know it better than we do. They just have one page to look at and then trade. Like trading cards. I'll trade you, Samuel, for, what do you got, John? Or I've already read that one. What do you got, Luke? Okay, what? <laughs> it's amazing. The word is so powerful. Keep one in your car. Keep one at your nightstand. Keep one in different places. And when you're bored, let it convict you. I mean, I know you have one on your phone, but when you pick up your phone, I know how tempting it is. But that way, when there's a Bible around, it's like, well, maybe I'll pick up the word and realize what it actually can do in five minutes. What the word of God can do in five minutes is absolutely amazing. But there are so many different, I guess you could say, focuses that churches have. Sentimentalism, pragmatism, whatever it might be to gain the hearts of the people. And they compromise. But I want to share with you today the true focus and mission of the church Again, and five reasons why the early church grew, even despite all the persecution and the craziness that surrounded them during the first century. So number one, the true focus in the mission is to mature believers. Galatians 4.19 says it this way, that I don't want to do anything else but make sure that they have Christ formed in them. I, I don't have any other desire, honestly, I, I mean, I, that's why I think at times, you know, people have asked, aren't you afraid of losing people? No, I'm not. 
I know God will give us the right people, and I want to be faithful to those people. Whoever he gives us. I, I don't get to pick and choose. Just as much as I don't get to pick and choose who gets saved or not. I just herald the gospel, people get saved, and then we teach sound doctrine to help people grow in their faith. But the ultimate goal is that Christ would be formed in people. That ultimately, I should see someone in five years say, Pula, you look more like Jesus. Five years later, it's amazing. That is the goal of church. Why do you come? It shouldn't even be, it shouldn't even be, oh, I want to listen to what John has to say, because that's not the goal. It's not, oh, I want to hear if Ricky has a new song, which I think, by the way, that might have been a new one, right? It's not, it, it's not about, the, I, you know, people say this all the time. We're like, oh, hey, I, I love the, and I've heard this being said maybe at other churches and different, being in ministry and for, being a Christian for the last 20 years, I've heard lots of different things and people, why they stay, why they leave. But man, they got good teaching, but you know, the music's a little, you know, I just want this out of the music. That's so silly. Why do you come to church? I could deal with, you know, uh, music being this way or that way. I can deal with lots of different things. I can even deal with being a little lonely in church. Amen? I come here so that Christ gets formed in me. And guess what? When when, When Jesus gets more of you, it's like, oh, I just want more of Jesus. No, no, no. Sorry. It's the other way. Jesus gets more of you, more peace. If I get more of Jesus, he, he's not like compartmentalized. Oh, I want more of him. Like as if I get more of his fingers, more of his legs, more of his body. That's so weird in a way. It's just such a strange thing, but he's getting more of you. You're surrendering more of yourself to him. You'll have more peace. You'll have more joy. That's what the word says. We're trying to do so many different things to try to get more peace. And all he's saying is, let go of yourself. Let go of the things that you're holding on to. You'll have more peace. Why why do I know that? Philippians 4 says that. When I give more to him, when I cast more of whatever it is, anxieties, I get more peace. Amazing. When I give up, he gives me more. More. Amazing how it works. Okay, number two, preach the word. Teach sound doctrine. Second. Timothy 4, I won't read it, but like I said earlier, preach the word of God in season and out of season. I'm telling you, we are entering a season where it's going to become more and more unpopular. It will. And we have got to get used to being hated. It is like a a badge of honor. It will become like that. You know, before it was like, hey, how many people like me? How much popularity do I have? Now it'll be like, how many people hate me? How many people unfollowed me? That will say something. Not how many likes you get, how many dislikes. Because that's what I see in the word. It's actually the ones who are living more for him have less followers. The people that are living more for him are more disliked than they're liked. Why do I know that? John 6. By the way, if you haven't caught on, the Bible answers everything. Uh, John 6 tells you about that story where Jesus literally gave everybody free Chick-fil-A and everybody was so excited, right? It was on Sunday too. That was the miraculous thing about it. (laughs) On Sunday morning, he gave everybody nuggets. Amazing. You know, a little nugget and then the little minis. 
Everyone got, and there was lots, there was baskets full of the biscuits and the chicken. They didn't realize how good they had it. That's why they were left over. No. But the, honestly, he gave them free lunch, and they left him. Why? They got their fill of human food, right? And then he's saying, hey, those who actually want to follow me got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Hey, I've already eaten. I'm good. I got my full of the world. But when you get your full of the world, you're not interested in Jesus. They began to dislike him one by one. They all followed Jesus that day. They all tagged their friends that day. Everything was awesome when they got the freebies. Then Jesus said, hey, if you really want to follow me, you've got to take all of me in. Everything. You've got to take all of me, all my sayings, all my ways, everything, if you really want to follow me. It's just how it works. Are you willing to actually do that? And one by one, dislike, dislike, untag, untag, dislike. That guy won't like what he's saying. Free lunch, sure, he'd be interested. He's always starving. He doesn't have any money. That guy would be, all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. And then he literally turned to Peter and said, are you leaving me too? Are you kidding me? I'm with you whether I get a free lunch or not. I know you have the words of eternal life. There is no other. That is really where we're headed. Number three, fellowship with other believers. The fellowship with other believers. What an amazing thing we have. I love coming to church. And there's nothing wrong. Hear me right. There's nothing wrong with coming. If you have a tinge of loneliness, get filled up with Jesus, then come to the house of God and fellowship. Because your needs won't be met by the person next to you. Be met by him. And when you're full, you can overflow. But when you're empty, you take. And we can't come to the house of the Lord taking all the time. Emotionally. Number four, discipleship. That is the main thing that Jesus called us to. To make disciples. To encourage and exhort one another. Five, worship God together. I love worshiping in the household of God. Such a fun thing. And I love to look around the room and see people just giving their life to him. Of course, it's song. I don't know what they do behind the scenes. But it is, worship is more than song. But it has to do with thanksgiving and praise and worship. That is worship also. Number six, equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That's our job, to make sure that you know how to do the very thing that God called you to do to discover it safely, and then also not only discover it, but also be equipped in it, sharpened in it, and then to be empowered to do it. Number seven, evangelism to the world, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, and then Luke 19, 10, I've seek and save the lost. That is the purpose why Jesus came, and then Acts 1, 8, of course, to go and to all the world. And then, you know, as they continue to do this, I'm just going to rattle off these because I think it's worth it. But Acts 2.41, 3,000 got saved. Now, I will say this, that, that numbers don't matter, but they do. In one sense, they do matter in, in, in a sense that, hey, they wanted to understand how many people were coming to Jesus. There were people that were taken down. The, there were Mike Pabones, you know, the statisticians. They were trying to come and make sure that, uh, you know, they, maybe they were taking like, hey, this is how many people were in the town. This is how many people came to Christ. I mean, 
they were making sure, how do I know that? Because multiple verses all the way leading up to Acts 11, it says in 240, 40, I'm sorry, 247, more were added daily. Four, four, 5,000 total. Then in 514, there's a multitude. Six, seven, there was an increase. 931, there was also another increase. 1121, there was a large number turned to the Lord. 1124, considerable numbers brought to the Lord. Hundreds were coming to him. And they marked that. And that is a big deal because as we're going into this next phase here, our next uh, passage, you're going to see that it doesn't actually make sense that the, this church grew. In fact, most of the world would say a church would not grow in this environment. Most churches would never grow. I mean, if you go to the average Christian conference, you won't find any of this. So if you know, if you've been, how many have gone to Christian conferences? Pretty much all of us have. By the way, this would not be in it. So this is going to be brand new material <laughs> for, uh, for conference goers because you won't find anything in here. The very the beginning, talking about all these other things, I, there are whole, can I just say this? There are whole movements, church organizations, like big organizations, denominations that are beginning to water down the gospel. They're going to be get, they're beginning right now as we speak, voting to water down this gospel that we have, to not teach sound doctrine anymore. Why? Well, one, Colossians 2 says that people are buying into the philosophies of this world. That's one. I mean, that's... But also because people are desperate to put more seats, more people in the seats. One, one guy says... Uh, what does he say? This one of my mentors. He said, "More, uh, what do you say? More noses, more nickels, and more nickels and noses." And and uh, what does he say? I can't think of what he said. Now he always says, "You probably, I can't think of the name now." What did he say? More season. I don't remember now. I can't think of it. As one of those. Uh, he wanted more nickels and noses. That's what he said. More nickels and noses. Meaning more noses you get, more nickels. Uh, and, and I don't know. It, it doesn't really matter. But he's, he's, basically he was trying to say, if you get more people, you get more money. I mean, that's basically what it is. And that's true. There is some Churches don't want to close their doors. And there is a lot of doors closing. The pandemic, we'll see probably about a year from now, we'll see how many churches will not make it. Because so many of them are just wanting to stay home, stay safe. I mean, and some of them good reason. But I think God is beginning to weed out the churches. And they're, the, and, and they're literally, I mean, just as the, uh, I was saying to somebody the other day, I think the middle class is going away. I think the, 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 the poor and the rich, middle class, right? The, I think the lukewarm church is going away. There, you will, you, it will cease to exist. You can no longer be apathetic and call yourself a Christian. It won't happen anymore. You're either hot or cold. And I, I think that that is going to be happening more and more, as we see in the next coming years, I, I do believe that it's going to be an exciting time. It's going to be in Isaiah 60, right before our eyes. There's going to be great darkness, but there's also going to be great light. You will see the contrast so easy. You'll see, oh, that's the church. And you'll be able to evaluate that. It says that, in Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. That is a regular exercise for the believer. 
to actually evaluate yourself to see if you're his. All right, so how did the church continue to grow even despite opposition, which you saw the internal opposition with Ananias and Sapphira last week, and then this week we'll see uh, more opposition happen from the outside. And so how did they actually grow? There's five reasons why the early church grew. Number one, they were a holy church. They were pure. God uses those who are pure. It says in 2 Timothy 2, 19 to 21, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to keep away from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver implements, but also implements of wood and earthenware. And some are for honor, while others are for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be an implement for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. That should be all of our desire. Can I just say God doesn't use everybody? I mean, despite what people say, oh, God wants to use you. I'm not sure if he does. Let's hold on. Just wait. We should not. I mean, nobody's going to become a leader like within the first couple months. We have to test them. And people might say, well, that's very judgmental. That's the church where judgment begins in the household of God. We want to see if you are his. We don't get, now listen, we don't get to decide what your calling is. We're not controlling the church in that way. That's not right. But when they, if they have a call, that's wonderful, but that's step one. Step two is that they be purified so they can actually fulfill that call. And they need to be equipped as well. Robert Murray McShane, probably none of you know who this guy is, but he's a Scottish pastor in the 1800s. Well, some of you might. He says this, Do not forget the culture of the inner man. I mean of the heart. How diligently the Calvary officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with greatest care. Remember you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God. That is the goal. Purity. You, you know you already have a gift. Can I just say that purity is not guaranteed? The gift is. The gift gets distributed on the day of salvation. It's already yours. This is, I, I, it says that in Ephesians 2.10, when you're saved, you are being created for good works. They're already set aside for you. Not, not everybody accomplishes them. Why does not everybody accomplish them? Because there's this thing called purity. When you're pure, you'll get to be, you'll get to be used as a mighty sword in the hand of God. Purity actually matters in the church. God takes very seriously, as you saw it of Ananias and Sapphira, by the grace of God they died. You ever think about that? Some of us say the opposite. But it's by the grace of God they did so that, that God could show how seriously he actually takes sin. In other words, Peter was probably saying, God takes seriously sin. God's like, no, he doesn't. And then that day, everyone's like, oh, yes, he does. <laughs> It was proof. God allows gross sin to happen in the camp to see what his church will do. Ah. Hmm. <laughs> it's a test. And I think we just had that test. 
and we'll have more and more more tests as the time goes on. Well, in other words, we shouldn't be surprised because this is normal to deal with sin. To deal with sin in the camp is normal. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, another extreme example, some are falling asleep because of their sin. They took the communion in an unserious manner, and they died. In other words, they would have been better off eating at home, they're full, than coming and not abusing the elements of communion. If we have time, we'll take communion today. We'll just see what the Lord does. No, just kidding. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. But you know what? You know what that does, though? That passage, if anything, it provokes the fear of the Lord that when I have the elements before me, I actually take it seriously. I want to examine myself to see if I'm still in the faith. If I acknowledge what God has really done in my life, not just flippantly just take it. I used to do that throughout my I Literally, I did it over and over and over again because I grew up in a Catholic church. We took communion all the time. In fact, Holy Communion was something I did when I was in second grade. I just took it just because I had to. That wafer would just give you bad breath, you know? A little wafer thing, you know, and the juice. Horrible breath. Uh, but I didn't understand what I was doing. Now, God kept me alive, of course. He wasn't, like, he didn't. But I want to increase now as I'm a Christian. I'm not worried about if I'm going to die or not after communion. I'm, going to, I'm concerned with, am I close to the Lord? Do I have fellowship with him? That's what I want. I want his pleasure. All right. Confronting sin and not tolerating it is totally contrary to, to today's culture. It was totally normal. But here's what it says. Proverbs 27, 6. As, a, as contrary to the culture today... Many are uh, focused more on people's self-esteem, right? How many are, I mean, that's primary focus for everybody. When you go into the workplace, I just want to make sure everybody, what feels good. We all got to make sure everybody feels good. Well, this is what the Bible says. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. In other words, people really have to hate one another to keep quiet towards somebody else's sin. What God is saying, ultimately, is that if you really love one another, you would point it out. Because he wants a purified church. And a purified church is not something that uh, is bad. It's a good thing. It's actually great. The, the, the worship actually goes up when, there's, when the church is pure. Right? When the church is, pure, when the church is purified, when there's a fear of the Lord, worship actually goes up. I, okay, if I'm preaching to you right now about uh, having a low view of God of like how you just get to kind of do what you want and he's always going to just give you grace. Does that make you want to worship? When kids grow up in an environment like that, where they get away with things, it's always amazing on the front end. Always. It's wonderful. Until they grow up. Jails are full of people who are never disciplined by their parents, who are never disciplined by teachers or disciplined in the church, for that matter. We've got to actually uphold the purity of the church. We're not, ju we're not judgmental. We're not trying to judge people. We're not, I don't want you to come and be like, oh, I better sit right, better do That's called legalism. It's outward appearance. 
But what we're actually saying is you're, that the, if people, if you, if you allow yourself to get close to people, guess what? Your sin's going to be more exposed. But when, when that happens, understand that that's a good thing. Because guess what, what the goal is? Galatians 4.19. Colossians 1.28. That you would be complete in Christ. Complete. So in other words, the motive is, man, someone's going to, oh, someone's going to notice my sin and probably going to call it out. What if that happens? I'll have less status in the church. No, you'll have more. <laughs> you'll, have, you'll have more. I mean, the saber gets clean into the hand of God. Every single time that happens, every time somebody points something out. In fact, my kids love to point things out. I like to point things out. They like to point things out. <laughs> it's a wonderful environment. We help each other. Iron sharpening iron, right? And they, it's just, it's like the saber just getting cleaner so that God can, sharper, so that God can use us. Luke 17, 3, when your brother sins, rebuke him. That's easy. Pretty straightforward there. <laughs> Galatians 6, 1, brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, are we spiritual? Could you, do you consider yourself spiritual people? I always hear that all the time. I'm spiritual. What the heck are you talking about? Okay, if you are, then... You're to restore such a person in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you are not tempted as well. It's actually a dangerous thing to get into people's lives. It's very dangerous. It's very dangerous to get into people's lives. In fact, it says in, uh, in James and in Jude, it talks about the same thing at the end, that if you do, be careful that you are also not burned by the same fire they're being burned by. It's, we need discernment. When we're in people's lives, we need incredible discernment. And I'm telling you, if there's a word of the Lord this year for 2021, it's discernment. We need greater discernment. Greater discernment when we watch news. Greater discernment when we're their friends. Greater discernment in the world. Greater discernment in what we're reading. We need greater discernment. And that uh, is, of course, available, 1 Corinthians 12, for anybody. So the gift of the Spirit. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, if people say, well, hey, you, if you do, if you, if it says in Proverbs that those parents who do not discipline their kids, they hate them. I mean, I, we tell our kids that all the time. Why are you doing that? Well, if we, if we don't, it shows that we actually hate you. I mean, and I, I, I don't hate you. I love you. You know, your parents are like, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. No, it's not. <laughs> It doesn't at all. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Maybe emotionally. Probably not. But <laughs> Hebrews 12, 5, it says that the Father disciplines us because he loves us. That is the ultimate motive in the church to point out people's sin and to deal with sin is because of love. There are many examples in 1 Timothy 1, 20, Paul names names. He names these guys because they were blaspheming. They're blasphemous in the church. He says, look, put them out. Also, Titus 1.13, he also says to uh, reprove severely. He actually uses the strong language there uh, to be sound in their doctrine. Why? Because how many know that wrong, wrong belief systems lead to wrong living? Now here, how do we get wrong belief systems? We tolerate the world's philosophy in the church. 
Here's the thing. We can be always on the defense, which I'm sure some of you guys have been to a defensive church where they're always talking about things that they're not. We need to balance offensive and defensive. We don't always just want to talk about all the bad things to avoid. However, there are times and seasons where we have to point it out. And I think we're in one of those. It doesn't always happen, but there are a lot of, there's a lot of empty philosophies coming against the church. Colossians would be a great book to study. In fact, I'm studying it right now, trying to help. I want to help our people understand what the church is up against in these coming years. It is really important. Galatians 2, 11 and 12, Peter just literally in person, out loud, in public, rebuked Peter. Of course, they reconciled later. Peter writes about that. 1 Timothy 5, 20 talks about rebuking leaders but also having proof, having, you don't just waltz right up to leaders and accuse them. You've got to have two or three witnesses. Second, excuse me, Second Thessalonians 3, 6, 14 and 15. Now we commend you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother or sister who leads a disorderly life and not one in accordance with the tradition which you receive from us. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special notice of that person so as not to associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard that person as an enemy, but admonish that one as a brother or a sister. Now, it sounds like they're contradicting itself kind of in the passage, but really what he's talking about is that when a person does not repent of their sin, we don't just hang out with them. Because what it's talking about is that, well, let me just read one more and then I can conclude it. But first, first Corinthians 5, 19 and 13, it says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexual moral, immoral people. I did not at all mean, listen, with the sexual moral people of this world. Now, Jesus hung out with the immoral of this world. That was the difference. Watch, every time he met with people or he ate with people or he invited, <laughs> Jesus was notorious for inviting himself over. Imagine just doing that. I'm coming to your house. Come to your house tonight, and I'm assuming you're going to cook me a meal. And I'm just going to hang out with you and do discipleship. I think we should start that up, right? Just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> with the unsaved, by the way. All right. But I did not at all mean sexual morale and moral people of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. For then you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is sexual, immoral person, or greedy or person, or idolater, or is verbally abusive, or habitually drunk, or swindler, not even to eat with such a person. For what business of mine is it that you judge outsiders? Do not judge those who are within the church. But those who are outside, God judges, remove the evil person among, from among you. That, that is hard to understand because it's, Paul's saying it's the exact opposite of what we might think. We, ha, we should make friends with the world. We can associate with them. If they find us associating us with the world, with people, who, listen, this is important, for people that do not com, uh, actually claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, clearly, is their Lord and Savior. Like, they are lost. And they're like, hey, what, what do we expect from the world? I don't expect anything from them. That's the point. The point is, hey, we can hang out with them with good conscience. As long as we don't, obviously, fall in the same trap of, of their sin, 
But what he's saying is don't associate with believers who are in sin and unrepentant sin. Because if we do, it actually looks bad upon us and people in the world looking and saying, but they're the same as us. We're the same, so what's the difference? And they don't want to come anymore. Why? Because we're the, they're the same. But why should they waste hours? You know how many hours we waste? Just add up all your church hours. Why would they want to waste? They're going to, they're going to I mean, if, if there really is no difference and, and it's just annihilation and it's just, I mean, they're just you know, fairy tales of hell and heaven and all that. I mean, why should they waste their time? They should go and make money in the world and, and enjoy the world and everything in it. But in order to purify the church, God says, if someone who is unrepentant, whether it's in their speech here, their action, their sexuality, whether it's in any category of their life, if they are unrepentant in that area, don't even eat with them. Wow. You think actually that, I mean, you're like, man, I mean, if we do this, the church will empty. And it didn't. It says it's proof multiple times I showed you all the way leading up to chapter 11. We can assume, obviously, we're all sitting here that uh, after Acts 11, the church still grew. The church grew when God dealt with sin and the church allowed him to do it. Why? Because it's actually attractive. It's different. It's different. People see that there's an actual difference in how the church functions rather than how the world functions. The world cancels. God loves. This is not a canceling of people. This is not like, oh, we're canceling people. No, no, no. We're restoring people. The only way to actually restore them is to understand that they have a broken limb. And restoration is a medical term, actually, in the Greek, to restore. It's to put the bone back into place. And that's exactly what God has called us to do. But make no mistake about it. We're not to judge the world, but we're to judge the inside the house. And we should always have a desire to see the people restored. It is not to point it out for the sake of pointing it out. It's to pointing out for the sake of restoration. Always. And then, of course, he shows us how to deal with it. In Matthew 18, 15 to 20, I'll read it again. In, the, in, in this context, Jesus calls us to leave the 99 to restore the one. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. That is key. If we could just stop there, we'd, handle, we'd literally see so much fruit in the church. Just read that. For if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. A lot of times, it, you know, people read it like this, and I'm not sure if this is in the Passion Translation or, or a message, but it's usually, a lot of people read it like this. If your brother sins, go to a council, and if they all agree, then go to him in private. But that's not in the original language. In the original language, it says, if your brother sins, go to him in private, then reprove him. And if he listens to you, you've won him. It doesn't have to get to anyone else. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as 
to be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer, which in other words is an unbeliever. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. In other words, God agrees when we do it this way. We know that he is on our side when we do church this way. We know that. In other words, here's the enemy lie when we're actually accomplishing church discipline. The enemy lie is you're going to turn them away. This is, I'm not with you. This is too much. We got to love. We got to love. Jesus said, no, if you do this the right way, I'm with you the whole time. I am with you the whole way. The outsiders had great respect for the church. The unbelievers actually dared to associate with the church. Can you imagine that? They came in, but they weren't sure. They were a little hesitant. They were attracted to the church, but they were a little hesitant to commit to the church. In other words, can you imagine if an unbeliever came in, they're like, wow, this is amazing. This is incredible church. I mean, look at these people are so passionate. Then they walk with you throughout your life. They see the fruit on your life. And then when sin actually enters into the camp, it's dealt with. And they're like, you know what? I like everything else but that. (laughs) I do not want my sin (laughs) ever to be exposed. Now, that's, of course, unnatural for an unbeliever. But it should be very natural for a believer. That's the point. It keeps the shallow away. As much as that is hard to even say, but it keeps the shallow away. The church isn't, this is, uh, by the way, I don't know if I've said this before, but this isn't a seeker-sensitive church. Uh, I, I think it goes without saying. Um, it, it, it's, I'm not interested in that. I've watched it. I mean, when Nicole and I got saved, it was probably not, no more than about a few years after I discovered this was the era when we got saved. It was early 2000s, where the pragmatic church came in full swing, and it was all about people's needs. That's when the, nothing wrong with patting on the chairs, by the way, but that's when they began to pad the chairs and uh, make everything look like the world. The churches began to look a little bit more like corporate buildings, offices. Pastors were beginning to be CEOs, companies. There is now the executive pastor. Again, not all those things are bad. It's just it, it be, the, the church began to say, well, we're losing numbers, and we've got to become more like them right? And they steal the verse from 1 Corinthians 9 that says, I'll become all things to all people. That is not at all what that passage means. Not at all. In fact, in the context, I just read it before that I'll, I, all I have, my only goal is to make Christ and him crucified. The only thing I want you to know is Jesus in the gospel message as a, in its offense. In its offense. That's what Paul was saying. So becoming all things to all men that you might win them has nothing to do with softening the gospel so that you might win them. Although that's what many believe. Then uh, just one last point on this and then number two. But the, I'll just say this. I, I'm going to read two passages. This, this is also the goal of every follower. It's not only that we become more like him, but this is how we become more like him. This is actually the, the way in. In other words, Ma- uh, Matthew 7, 13, it says that, that very few actually find eternal life, and it's through the narrow door. And I just want to say that this is actually good. When Jesus tells us the way to heaven, I want to know. 
And when I find out the way to heaven and it doesn't really fit my fancy, it doesn't really, uh, it's not really what maybe the world would like, I'm okay with it. Why? Because he loves me enough to tell me. I'm not, I, I don't need it to fit the world's narratives. I just need it to fit in order to save me. And he tells me exactly what it means to be a follower. Here it is, Luke 9, 57 to 62. As they were going on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. It's almost like Jesus, if you, if you read the gospel, it's almost like he didn't want people to follow him. I mean, really though, and, and I mean, you got to ask questions when you're reading the Bible. You're like, I'm sorry, Jesus, but do you want people to follow you? Because I could help you out. That's what the pragmatists did. I mean, they just said, let me help you out. Let me help you out. There's plenty of them. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another one also said, I'll follow you, Lord. But first, let me permit me permit me to say goodbye to those at my home. He knew that if Jesus, if Jesus knew if he released that person to go back to his home, the comfortability of his home, he would actually not follow him. Why is it important that every believer go on mission right away? Because if you get stuck in suburbia, you'll never go. That's why the world is not actually reached right now. Can we realize that? I mean, it's really not hard stuff. You just buy an airplane ticket and go. It's because we've been too suburbanized, domesticated, and Jesus was trying to say, look, do not become domesticated. In fact, if you go home, I know mom will cook you a nice meal. She'll make your bed and you won't go. Right? But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom. You cannot just sign up for this thing and then look back and want comfortability. It doesn't work that way. In fact, it's actually worse. It's worse. Matthew 10, 32 to 39, therefore, everyone who confesses me before people, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before people, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is, uh, goes directly in the face of everyone who just, Jesus, it just comes to bring peace in every situation. Now look, he does say, blessed are the peacemakers. Now listen, I know there's so many seemingly contradictions in the Bible. They're just paradoxes. You've got to read. By the way, you have to read with the Holy Spirit. He wrote it. If you never interact with the author, you'll never know what he means. You've got to actually interact with the author over and over and over again. Do not read the Bible without the Holy Spirit. You'll need other things. You'll need background and commentaries, all that. It, it is very helpful. But he does... He does bring peace, doesn't he? Jesus does bring peace to us, internal peace. Why is it that he could bring internal, internal peace, eternal peace, and internal peace, all the while everything outside is chaotic, all relationships, our workplace, everything else, our world falling apart, but yet we're just fine. It's almost like as if, literally, you know in those movies where it's like, the, the old movie, I haven't watched them in a long time, but I, those ones where they're like, they like set up bombs and they're like, you know, just trying to come after the enemy and then they, they all detonate and they're just like walking out like this, like, you know, like all over the place. And it's like, they're just so at peace. And it's literally like chaos all around. It's because the Holy Spirit, who is peace, lives inside of you. 
But this passage is actually talking about that when you have an internal peace, you actually disrupt everything outside. But if you're just like them, anxious like they're anxious, there's no threat. And as you'll see in a second here, it's the threat that causes persecution. But he does say this, and fortunately this will happen more and more. In fact, many people will go through this in the coming years. For I have come to turn a man against his father. This is Jesus talking. And a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That probably already happens. Naturally. And a a person's enemy will be the members of his household. Wow, a person's enemies will be the members of his household. You won't even be safe in your own home. The one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who does not take his cross, follow me, is not worthy of me. The one who has found his will will lose it. And the one who has lost his life on my account will find it. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Why it sounds so different is because you've been sold a bill of goods for a lot of your life. I mean, a lot of you grew up in this church in one sense of the term. This is something that is so rare today. People are so worried about losing people, trying to please people, trying to keep people. They're so anxious, busybodies, to try to make sure everybody's just happy. Happy, happy, happy. Jesus is not really worried about that in this passage, is he? But you know what? He has prepared a place for us. John 14, he has prepared a place for all of us. And let me tell you, you will be happy for all of eternity. You will. It's going to be amazing. I think it's good to think about it often, actually. It's amazing that you think about it more when you're persecuted. When things aren't really going well, you think more about heaven becomes more glorious against the backdrop of utter evil on this planet. Number two, powerful church. Now it says here in verse 12, I'll just read this and I'll read up to verse 16 in Acts. But as the the hands of the apostles may, I'm sorry, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to their number. Verse 15, to such an extent that even they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them in cots and pallets, which just signifies the poor and the rich and the, their ailments, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were being, all being healed. They were actually living this out. They were going beyond Jerusalem. Remember Acts 1.8? That was the mandate to go beyond Jerusalem into Judea and to Samaria and the ends of the earth. It was beginning to happen. But not only that, but they were a powerful church. Signs and wonders were always meant to point to Jesus. They're not just... They're not for our benefit. They had a purpose. They served a greater purpose. Now, of course, the person being healed, of course, they benefit from that. But they served a greater purpose. In other words, the healing was not the end. It was a means to an end. 
They were, it was always like that. And contrary to many churches today, the conferences, they were all actually, you could go to conferences today, they're all just surrounded around uh, the goal of one purpose to, to, uh, to just heal people. Bring everybody, bring your grandma, bring your aunt, bring your uncle, come in droves so that you might be healed. Now, there's nothing necessarily evil about somebody asking for healing, right? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, God heals today. He does. He heals today. Maybe not as, not as a normative way, but because God had a purpose. In other words, maybe like, okay, so you got two things going. You, you saw a lot more healings, but there was a lot more purpose because he needed to affirm, they, God wanted to affirm this Bible, the scriptures, so that we would believe them. He was testifying to his word with miracles. Now that he doesn't need to do that anymore, there are less miracles, signs and wonders today, but there still, there still are. Does that make sense? Amen? Y'all, all right, good. Because I don't want any emails or people say, well, God doesn't, he said God doesn't heal today. I didn't say that. God does heal today. God heals today. But there was a greater purpose to it then. And even today, there's still that same purpose. If he heals, no, understand, people, there will be people, the, the ironic thing about it, there will actually be many people who have experienced the very power of Jesus, maybe even his own hands or who are in hell. Even by the apostles' hands themselves, let alone ours. I mean, what are our hands? I mean, you can be healed of a broken bone, but still not believe. But they were, make no mistake about it, they were a powerful, powerful church. In fact, one last point here in Acts 4, 29 and 30. We read that, uh, I think, last week. Um, and Dr. Thrasher talked about it too as well. But Acts 4, 4, 29 and 30, they prayed this prayer. Do you remember what the prayer is? They prayed for signs and wonders. They prayed that God's power would be displayed on the earth. God didn't answer that prayer right away. What did he do next? Ananias and Sapphira. What did he do? He killed people for their sin. He made it, he, and then, and then it says right after that, after, I mean, this passage, after he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira, what did he do? He displayed his glory. What does that mean? What does that mean? When we're pure church, God will display his power. When God begins to purify this church, when he begins to purify us as leaders, us as a church, our marriages, our relationships, when he begins to purify the church, we'll be a very powerful church. Now, I'm not saying that, okay, if we get rid of pornography, we'll see more healings. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is true miracles. You know what the true miracles are? More salvations. You know what the true miracles are? Freedom from sin. You actually want to see more power on people's lives? God wants allow him to purify this church. God, please, I, I invite you to purify this church. Purify it. Ephesians 5, wash us. As husbands are supposed to do to their wives, Jesus does to the church. He washes us pure by the water of his what? Word. The water of his word. All right, number three, they were a persecuted church. Pure and powerful churches will cause persecution. Inevitably, when you walk in 
to your workplace or your household, maybe even for Thanksgiving, if you live this way, purified, you will provoke the unsaved. That provoking the unsaved will cause persecution when we speak the truth. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do it, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. And I think in the coming days, some of us will be persecuted and it'll actually feel good. That's what this passage, this is a promise here. It's saying you will actually feel good. And a lot of us don't ever, don't ever feel this good because we're actually, is a mixture of doing right and wrong and we're persecuted for it. But God wants to purify the church in such a way that when we actually do what is right and we're persecuted for it, we'll actually feel peace, tranquility. 1 Peter 4, 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Oh God, that's for all of us. We want God to rest upon us. Matthew 5, 10 and 12, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you or persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. Reward in heaven is great for this same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. I, I just want to say this. I, I have to. It, understand that it, when, in, in the coming days, we will see more persecution happen inside the four walls of the church. And it's already begun. In other words, that where the persecution is going to come is going to come first in the house. And he's going to use it to purify us. He's going to use it to unify us. And when he does, that's when you'll begin to see persecution from the outside. Because if we look the same, the inside and the outside, there's no persecution. There's no need for it. So God is going to allow persecution to happen inside. And that is just by, in life groups, you say something truthful and all of a sudden they get up and all, all up in arms. That's, that's a form of persecution. It's come from inside. But who were, can I just ask you, pop quiz, who were the biggest enemies of Paul and Jesus? Church people. Church people. I mean, they're the Greeks. I mean, when you went to Athens and Ephesians, they, they, they did do their fair share of persecution. Uh, but... It happened with the Jews first and then the Gentiles. What is that saying? Cleansing happens inside the house first and then comes persecution from outside. All of it's self-righteous anyways. Self-righteousness will always persecute. John 15, 18 to 20, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. They pat you on the back get you new things, they promote you, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the world, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. And if they followed my word, they will follow yours also. 
And lastly, Romans 8, 17, And if children, heirs also, and heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we might be glorified with him. On the back end of suffering is glorifying. The religious leaders, why is there such persecution even inside the church? Let me just say this. Do you know the number one reason for persecution? You know what it is? You've disrupted the status quo. You are threatening the, the world systems, even inside the church. You're making people feel, hey, you're ruining things. You're actually ruining my friend group, right, by your truth. You're ruining my life. No, I'm sorry. I'm ruining your status quo. <laughs> I'm ruining your little, nice little life that you put together. Remember the little pig story where they just blew your house down? People are making houses made of toothpicks. They're just putting things together the way they want it. Just leave me alone in the wind of God. God doesn't even have to, God doesn't even, he just breathes and the thing just falls over. He just breathes, literally. Some of us have the wood, right? And then, of course, then the bricks. And it mirrors the Matthew 7 passage where those who are build their house on the rock, even though the storms will come. Some of you guys made it through the craziness of this last season because your house is on a rock. But some of you didn't make it because your house is made of sand. What are you building your life on? If it's Jesus, you got to get everything. You got to get everything. You got to get the whole world, the whole, the whole word, the whole counsel of God, his sayings, everything in it. His death, burial, and resurrection. The only problem with their message, the Romans didn't like them because they were a threat, but really the religious people didn't like them. They were a threat to their, you understand, the Sadducees were very prominent in the Roman world. They didn't want to lose their, their status quo. They understood that if the Romans started coming in and taking care of business because of riot, and it was causing riots. People were here saying, you killed Jesus. It was causing a massive riot because they felt uncomfortable. Can I just say the riots that we see today, it is caused at the root of it, it's because they feel uncomfortable. That's why riots happen. The reason why we don't have to riot is because we know who's in charge. We know how it ends. When we start having to get loud and obnoxious and throwing things and breaking things, we don't know who our king is. Our king is a man, is what you're saying. And the man isn't doing what we like. All right. Woo. That's, I love, I, it's just good. The truth is so good, isn't it? I love the Bible. I love the word of God. So good. Can I just say also what is so fun? I'll just read the rest of this. I know we're got to go here, but, uh, but the high priest rose up along with the associates, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. That is another reason why people persecute jealous. They laid hands on the excuse me. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail for the night. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, taking them out, and said, "Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life." What is kind of ironic and funny, actually, is the Sadducees actually did not believe in angels, and God used angels to release them, <laughs> which always happens, right? 
I believe that's what's going to happen in the end. As we get closer and closer to the end, the very thing that people despise, the very power that people say is not available, they'll see it. They will see it. Then also it says, I love this too, is that, you know, God did not, God does not free us from prison to go and hide and cower in fear, but to go and preach. In other words, why is really, I said, look, I'm releasing you not just to, you didn't get trapped like uh, outside of my sovereignty. You got trapped in my, in the confines of my sovereignty. I let you go, not so that you can run and hide as if I might have made a mistake. I let you go so that you could preach again. And that's what they understood. They understood their goal. They were so focused, they understood their mission. That's what I love about the church. That's what I love about the early church. They didn't mess around. They, they understood, they weren't trying to get away with it. Like, oh, whew, we just got out of that one. They're like, yeah, we just got out of that one, so we get back at it. <laughs> Let's get back at it. That's amazing. Do you want to, I mean, I want that kind of grit in this church. In the coming days, I want that kind of grit that says, hey, whatever happens, man, we know our goal, and our goal, unless, it's a, unless Jesus is here, unless thousands upon thousands are getting saved, our goal is not accomplished. Now, when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, and even all the senate of the sons of Israel and, the, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in prison. Can you imagine that? And they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when they had opened up, we found no one inside. Where were they? They were preaching. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests, look at all the people are on this mission. (laughs) Heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them the men who were who put in prison, or the men who put in prison, standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the, then the captain went along to the officers and proceeded to them to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of people that they might be stoned. So they were probably going to kill them, but the reality was if they did, then they'd be in big trouble and they might lose their positions. When they had brought them, in other words, I'll just say this, people who are opposed to God will always use the law for their benefit. And they will watch it. Even in our own country, they will use the law only for their benefit. When they had brought them, they stood did them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in, in this name. They couldn't even mention Jesus. And yet you had filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, that was a direct quote from Matthew 27, 25, which Jesus, uh, they actually got what they deserved. They said, you, you, you just intend to bring ma- uh, this man's blood upon us. Would they, would they scream <laughs> at the time? Bring this man's blood upon us and our children. <laughs> they literally just got what they asked for. But Peter and the apostles answers, we must obey God rather than man. Guys, if this is not a phrase for the 21st century, I don't know what is. But this will be, become more common for the church in the coming days. The God of the fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to, to his right hand as the prince, which is the kind of the author of life, and the savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. They understood the message. 
They understood that repentance was part of being a Christian. They understood that the Holy Spirit was only given to those who are saved. We should never promise the Holy uh, uh, promise or affirm. Uh, let's say it this way: you should never affirm someone who's not saved. And the evidence of salvation is the Holy Spirit living inside them, repentance. And He's basically saying to them, "You guys aren't like that." But then, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill him. But the Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of them, about 400 men, joined, up, joined with them. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who follow him were scattered. So in this present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. For case in point, we're all sitting here. Or else you may even be found fighting against God. Do you know all the politicians and all the people that are, if you haven't noticed, I'll just say this, that we are, we will probably see in our lifetime the First Amendment go away. I'll say that. And there is, we will see that in the coming days, that we cannot rely. I think Christians, I think God has allowed Christians to rely on man's law to preach the gospel. Hey, we're free. We're good to do it. But God is going to take that away, and then we'll see what America's made of. That is what's going to happen in the coming days, I believe. But you know what? We'll actually see for the first time people fighting against God. Because you know this is going to happen. You know this will. Now, Camille, Camille, although he had great advice, he was very indifferent. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way in the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's amazing. I want to end with a few things here. Number three, the persecuted church. Number four, they were bold. They were a bold church. We must obey obey God rather than man. And then they were a persevering church. Why do I say a persevering church? Because they were they allowed they, they persevered even though there were three results to the message. Sometimes we we have to try to figure out ways to get people to believe this message. Because we're we, sometimes we're such insecure people that we cannot handle rejection. We have to release the word of God, and release the results to him. We, we've got to be able to just give it to him. We don't want to coerce people to follow God. We don't, also ultimately, we don't even want to make it easy for people to follow God. Why do I say that? Because I believe that a lot of us will be hurt if we make it easy for people to follow God. When we make it easy for people to follow God, we become more, their friends. We deceive them. We do them a disservice. They become more and more close to us. We become like, it becomes like a marriage. 
And then all of a sudden, they weren't the real deal. They didn't actually really want Jesus. They just wanted it because we made it easy. And all of a sudden, they leave, and then we wonder what happened. And I believe that is going to happen more and more. But let me just leave you with this. There's three results, ultimately, for the gospel message. And I'll really just give you a picture of what we'll see in the world today or what we already see. Number one, hostility. In Acts 17, 32 to 34, now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to scoff. That's one. They scoff. They're hostile. Number two, we shall hear, they say, we shall hear from you again concerning this. How many say that? I think there's a lot more in that majority, right? Number two, they're indifferent. Well, let me hear it again. Uh, And maybe they don't say it that way, but they're just like what we call maybe seekers. Now, we know nobody seeks God. Now, if they're seeking God, God might be doing something. Because the Bible says that nobody seeks God. Not even, there's nobody righteous. Nobody seeks God. They Left to themselves, they seek their own pleasures. They seek the world. So if someone is genuinely seeking God, we should walk with them. But we know it's the work of God. Number three, some joined and believed. So number one, hostility. That word means in the Greek to cut open. It literally reminds me of Hebrews 4.12, right? The word of God is a sharp edge. It's a a sword. It's a double-edged sword. It's able to get into the tightest places of our life. It brings conviction, John 16, 7 to 11. But I tell you the truth, it is your advantage that I'm leaving. For if I do not leave, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And and when he comes, he will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment regarding sin because they do not believe in me. And regarding righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you no longer are going to see me. And regarding judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. In other words, the Holy Spirit brings the conviction, not you. We've got to release the word. They understood the sovereignty of God. They understood that God is the one who saves people. And they were indifferent. The second category is first hostile, second indifferent. They were, uh, here's this quote, while Gamaliel's counsel seemed wise to the Sanhedrin, the notion that whatever succeeds has God's blessings is absolutely false. Cults and false religions in our day have millions of followers. And what more evidence did he need to convince him beyond the empty tomb of Jesus and the miracles performed by the apostles? The word to all such fence sitters is now is this acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Gamaliel was a pragmatist, a poor substitute for being a good biblical scholar. Such lethargy on his part is not commendable in light of what he knew of Scripture and what he knew of the work of Jesus and the power of the apostles in his name. In other words, here's the deal. We might, we might dislike the hostility, but even more so the indifference. Guys, they're not all, yes, there will be hostility, hostile people in hell. We know that. I mean, people that actually persecute, like kill, chop off heads, put people in prison, you know, separate families. I mean, it's horrible stuff, but also the indifferent will also be there. The indifferent is actually more dangerous. Look up Revelation. What is the most dangerous kind of supposed Christian there is, lukewarm. You can't even call him that. It's an oxymoron. There's no such thing. Don't even have a category. In fact, God doesn't even have a category for them. A lot of us do. We we, we are okay with, oh, they're just struggling. They're just kind of, you know, they're in their, they're just in the phase. No, no, they're lukewarm, headed towards hell. Lukewarmness is damning. There's nothing more damning than lukewarmness. Of course, hostility, that's a given. And of course, number three, acceptance and trust. And then in Acts 6, 1, which we'll get to next week, they grew. 
there's so much complaining about the growth. I mean, there's so much growth that they, they begin to complain. <laughs> and we need help, which is going to be the next week. But there is so much. You would think after all this, you would think that the church ceased to exist, but it actually grew. If we want to grow, we've got to be pure. If we want to grow, we've got to be persecuted, be bold with the truth. Allow God to use us powerfully as we deal with the sin in the camp and persevere even through the hardest situations. Let me, uh, let me just, we're, we're not going to have a long closing time, but why don't we just, just have the, at least part of the band come up, or Ricky or whoever, just come up. Uh, we'll just, um, I at least want us to just respond to this and to these different categories and whatever the Lord brings up. I always, I always believe it is, uh, it's important to respond. It doesn't have to be an emotional response. We don't have to all get on our knees and run to the front and every time. And it just, but I believe there is a time where we just need to pause and say, okay, Lord, whatever's for me, change me. You know, a lot of times what I love about the word being preached is that sometimes it's not just the message that we're getting, but it's also reading between the lines, the other passages, it's the other verses, it's the little nuances. That's what we need this morning. What do you need? I love that these people did not back down despite persecution. God, make me into a man like that, to one who doesn't back down no matter what. We're going to need that. We're going to need that kind of perseverance. 1 Peter 4.13 says that they knew the suffering was worth it. Luke 18.8 says, when the Son of Man comes back, will he find any faith? What he's saying is that we're entering into a time where it's like, it says, he says, it's like the days of Noah. How many people got saved in the days of Noah, by the way? Just, how many people got saved? Eight. Eight. And by the way, uh, for all the maybe prophetic, symbolic people, that wasn't symbolic. There were literally eight people. Eight. Didn't mean anything. It, it, it didn't mean like, oh, I mean, didn't mean anything that, but what it says, eight people got saved. Eight people went through the narrow door. There's a very narrow door on the ark, and it was, I, I went to the ark, actually, in Kentucky. It was amazing how it just landed in Kentucky. Just sat, I mean, good old middle America. But it landed right there. It's all intact. It's incredible. Even after all the winds and the waves, animals are still there. Their offspring. But they're all there. But there's this narrow door. There's, I mean, we all took a picture in front of it. In fact, it was, we're all smiling. Then I thought, this is a very sobering picture, actually, that shows that many few actually go through that door. Very few. When that door closed, it was about to close. I mean, literally, it was just light outside starting to cloud up. I mean, you just see the storm in the background, just dark black clouds starting to come. You're like, I never saw those before. Maybe Noah was right. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this door is just starting to, starting to close, and people are running after it, just trying to, like, leap, you know, do one of those, and boom, right in their face, right in their face, because they were not ready. They were not ready. And I believe that is the days we're entering into, Luke 17, 26, the days of Noah, 
Matthew 24, marked by persecution, apostasy, unbelief. There's so much of it going to come. But understand that if you have the blood of Jesus, if you have your door that's been marked by the blood of Jesus, he will literally pass over your house, the angel of darkness. The angel of, of wrath will pass over your door. And I believe it is a sobering, it is a sobering moment. But I think we do have to at least look at that door and say, Jesus, make me into one who wants to narrow my life. The more narrow your life is, the more free it is. It is bondage to go the other way. The world promises you a large life ends in destruction. But Jesus promises a very narrow life that leads to life that leads to freedom, and very few find it.